Polly plays those interesting tricks with our assumptions about the relationship between class and disease. And Roosevelt was a perfect example of an incredibly wealthy elite man who had polio and then adopted polio as sort of his disease. He was sort of the, the patron of polio. Imagine living with the fear of catching a disease that could paralyze you for the rest of your life. Generations of people in the United States lived with the fear of polio and worldwide people still contend with that fear today. The development of the polio vaccine is one of the most renowned achievements in modern medicine and thanks to its development, it is vanishingly rare to see someone in an iron lung in the United States today. Huge amounts of resources went into the defeat of the disease, but today it is making slight inroads back into public discourse as unvaccinated people contract the disease once more here in the U.S. Join us as we explore the fascinating history of polio. This is Riches in Power, the podcast where we explore the industries and trends that shaped our world with experts renowned in their field of study. I'm your host, Alex Dubay, and I'm glad you're here as we explore topics both large and small, familiar and strange, and near and far. Join me as we learn about the forces that bent the world around them and built the world as we know it today. Thank you everyone for joining today. I'm your host, Alex Dubay, and I've been really looking forward to this conversation. We're joined by Naomi Rogers, PhD. She is a professor of the history of medicine at Yale University. She's in the section of the history of medicine and the program in the history of science there at Yale. She teaches undergrads, grads, medical students, and lectures on a lot of fascinating topics, including the history of AIDS, health economics, and health activism. And she's written a number of great books, including, apropos for today, Polio Wars, Sister Kenny and the Golden Age of American Medicine, and Dirt and Disease, Polio Before FDR. You can find out more about her and her work at medicine.yale.edu slash profile slash Naomi underscore Rogers. Naomi, thank you so much for joining. Really appreciate your time today. Thank you for having me. So I'd always like to start with kind of a, a definition, if you will. And a lot of us are familiar with polio somewhat. We're kind of familiar with the idea and what it does. But as a first step, can you just walk us through what the polio disease is? How is it contracted? How deadly is it? Just give us a quick overview. Sure. It's so interesting to me that polio is back in the news. When I was first writing about polio, it was almost as if I was writing about the bubonic plague. It was that old, seen as that old and dead uh, a disease. So polio is a viral disease, and it's spread by contact. The virus enters the mouth and usually goes directly to the gut and creates sometimes a stomach ache. Usually that's about it. And then it's excreted. And after that, the person who, whose body I was just describing has immunity from the disease. They had what is indeed polio. But for a small number of people, the virus travels from the gut uh, through the bloodstream, up to the spine and brain, and can cause neurological complications, in particular paralysis. And for a long time, really 
until maybe the 1950s or 60s, polio was associated solely with paralysis. So that if you said someone had polio, you didn't mean that they'd had a stomach ache. You meant that they had developed paralysis. And it was a very scary, it is a very scary disease. It is surprisingly not seen as contagious or as we think about contagious. We often think of contagious, say, in terms of respiratory diseases, right, where you can sort of trace someone who is coughing and sneezing and then they spread that to another person who begins to cough and sneeze. But although um, polio is indeed infectious and does pretty easily, it mostly stays in the gut so that you you may well have infected a bunch of people, but they're not going to develop paralysis. So in many ways, they're not sort of clearly identified without extra tools, extra diagnostic tools as someone with polio. And of course, the the dream for a long time is that um, either we would come up with some way to alter the virus so that it didn't create paralysis anymore, or we would develop some kind of antivirus vaccine so that we would give people the lowest, safest possible doses of the disease, really the virus, not so much the disease really, and they would develop immunity um, and never develop any symptoms at all. And that really is the basis of the polio vaccine. And when we talk about the, the range of polio outcomes when you get the, the virus, when you contract the disease, it sounds like most people may not even realize they had polio. And, and polio, as we think about it, the paralysis is a, a rather small portion of people who contract it. What are the approximate breakdowns there? The, the scary part, the paralysis, what percent of people who contract polio end up that way? Well, it's a, actually quite a difficult question to answer because in order to be able to say one in how many people um, get paralysis, you'd have to have really good surveillance techniques on how many people in a particular community have actually been exposed to the virus. Around the time that they develop really good surveillance techniques, you could test the blood, right, to see if you had antibodies, right, that would tell you that you were exposed, was the time that they were developing the vaccine. So really what they were doing in this surveillance is to see if people didn't have the antibodies and give them the vaccine, right? And uh, of course, that's a really good use of surveillance, but it doesn't answer the, the question, what percentage of people exposed to the virus get paralysis? I've seen estimates between one in 100 and one in 300. Th- those are the, the numbers that I've seen. But you know what? I am not sure how convincing those numbers are because the disease has been considered so serious that if you were going to test for it, you were supposed to then attempt to protect people immediately, right? You don't just test for it and then go off and write a clinical report. You don't want to just run a natural experiment and let people become paralyzed. No, you don't do that. That's fascinating. So it might be as low as single digits of people who contract polio actually become paralyzed. But it's very dramatic when it does happen. It it is. For for holding so much public imagination, I'm surprised to hear it's that low. Mm-hmm. In the course of your research, you, you focused a lot on the period before what I'll broadly describe as modernity, but you know before the 1800s, 1900s. Looking back into the time 
prior to then. When did polio first get identified as a disease? Were, were people aware of it broadly, you know, 100 years ago, 1,000 years ago, et cetera? That's such an interesting question. So I think of polio as sort of the term that starts to be used in the modern period, maybe even later than the 1890s, maybe from around the 1930s or so, people start to use the word polio. Before that, it was called infantile paralysis, which simply meant the paralysis of children or young people. And there are lots of historians who've gone back and looked at Egyptian sculptures to try to sort of post-diagnose whether someone might have had what we might have called polio. What I will say for sure is that by the early 1800s, there were certainly a few cases of people who were diagnosed with infantile paralysis and do seem to have had what we would call polio. It was very rare, very, very rare. And it was seen as one of those unusual neurological problems. And it's clear that you can be paralyzed as a child for many different reasons. So it's really hard to say how many of these were polio. What we do know is that by the 1880s, you start to see for the very first time ever cases in the 30s, 40s, and 50s of of numbers of people, uh, children. And they become known as infantile paralysis epidemics. And that's a real shock to people. That's actually seen as a new disease. I don't think I would say it was a new disease, but it's certainly a new epidemic. There was never an epidemic of polio before the 1880s and 90s. Was that corresponding with increased density in cities and the Industrial Revolution and so forth? Why was it that period of time when it started to happen? What a great question and something that many, many people asked. And they said, well, is it because of cities? Because after all, children are living in these you know, horrendously uh, filthy, congested places. And there are so many other diseases that urban children are getting. No, the answer is no. Although when I say that to you, that is something that was developed with great epistemological agony, I think you could say, because it seemed to contradict much of what people had learned about why a disease emerges and why it spreads. Instead, polio is actually a disease of cleanliness. By the 1880s and 1890s, there were communities in Scandinavia and a few in the northeast of the United States that had improved childcare so much that children were exposed to the virus only at the age of six or seven or eight. When you're exposed a little older, the virus still goes to the gut, but it's more likely to cause paralysis than if you're exposed as a baby. What an odd conception of a disease. It's very backwards from how we think about disease usually. It's very odd. I, I do. I say to people that sometimes you could think of polio as an upward mobility disease. You know, if your grandfather got uh, polio, that suggests that he was protected until he was at least seven or eight, maybe even later. And the prime example of this was when Franklin Roosevelt was um, paralyzed by polio. And he had clearly never been exposed to the virus. He'd lived on a a mansion as a child. He went to exclusive schools. Uh, He lived a very protected life, 
as a wealthy young man. And so he was only exposed in his late 30s. And it was when he was exposed and then developed paralysis that people began to say that polio was everyone's disease, right? Because that was a, a very powerful example that it wasn't just a disease of poor urban immigrant children. So we have a disease that's a little bit backwards, I suppose, from how I think of disease coming into the modern era traditionally, meaning we've gone from living in dirty conditions to clean conditions, and that actually gets rid of a lot of disease. But this is actually the inverse of that, where you go from having been exposed to it early to not having been exposed to it, thus contracting the more, shall we say, virulent form of it later in life. And I'm curious, looking back prior to this period, when you look at some of the the infant paralysis days of the disease, was there ever a stigma attached to it? Did society ever look at it and think, ooh, that's, that's something that is because they're poor, is because they're, they're living in squalid conditions? You know, p- pick your stigma. Was it a stigmatized disease early on? Oh, definitely. It was stigmatized for two reasons. One, if you could associate it with squalor, it always was. And uh, there were many, many poor families who had someone who was a, quote, cripple. And that was very much seen as uh, something that was part of the way they were living, right? But uh, if you couldn't do that, you could have the stigma of someone who was themselves a cripple, is the word that would have been used. And uh, so even middle-class children, for example, so Walter Scott had what he believed was infantile paralysis. Although he came from a middle-class family, nonetheless, he felt very stigmatized as a boy who couldn't do the same kinds of athletic things that other boys could do. So there was stigma either way. And this was well before we had the Americans with Disabilities Act or anything like that. There were no ramps leading up into buildings, I assume, back when in the period you're talking about. You would assume correctly, yes. And in fact, just to jump ahead from that comment, polio survivors have been a major uh, activist since the 1980s or so in pushing for disability rights and for the Americans with Disabilities Act. And so as we're coming into the 1890s, the late 1800s, we're, we're starting to see the outbreaks you mentioned of polio. And I assume this is also the period when it began to be identified as a, a quote-unquote public health risk, what we'd think about it today as a, a public health issue. Am I right in that guess? And how did government start to become involved in the late 1800s in managing the disease? So by the late 1800s and by the early 1900s, cases of infantile paralysis appeared in some farms and rural areas, but increasing numbers in cities. Um, It's not that cities weren't filthy. It's that there were still some families that managed to protect their children, especially actually uh, middle-class families, although there certainly were some uh, immigrant and poor children who did develop paralysis as well. Um, There's just more of them, more children in cities, so you're going to see more cases. And this immediately became a public health issue. Most uh, cities had public health departments and farms and other rural areas were more likely to be monitored, if at all, by a kind of amorphous state health board that 
didn't do very much at all. But a number of cities had quite active public health departments, Boston, Philadelphia, New York, Washington, D.C., Chicago. So polio rapidly became one of the diseases that public health officials warned parents about, attempted to institute quarantine for those people who were diagnosed with it when they identified a case and if they felt that a poor family was not able to quarantine properly, they would in fact extract the child, uh, even from grieving mothers, and take the child forcibly to a hospital where there would be an isolation uh, room. Mm. So was quarantine the primary intervention governments did back in the late 1800s? Yes. Yes, it is. And prior to the vaccine, again, in the same period, late 1800s, what kind of resources were governments bringing to bear in this this fight against polio? Was this anything akin to what we'd think of today as a big you know, National Institute of Health type, you know, CDC type intervention on a national scale? Or, or was this a much more provincial, smaller scale type intervention on the, the part of governments? Well, I'm not sure I'm comfortable with the word provincial. Public health really was much more a local and regional kind of um, activity with a number of very hardworking, you know, fiercely serious public health officials, many of them physicians, some of them nurses, who really sacrificed a great deal to be working in communities that they certainly had not been born in and found as a little strange and alien to them, but with a sort of commitment that they needed to try to help families help themselves, help keep their children safe, help keep their food safe, the various sorts of things that public health departments uh, still care about. So it was more likely to be a local effort. There was no NIH. There was no federal funding for public health work so that it was always state and local based. Polio has always just struck me as such a terrifying disease in a lot of ways. We kind of touched it on this at the beginning. It, it's a very scary thing to be faced with this idea that you might not be able to use one part or perhaps several parts of your body for the rest of your life. And I was curious, just putting myself in the shoes of somebody living back in the late 1800s, when you have this mysterious disease, we don't totally understand it, and you might be paralyzed. Did you have any sort of mass hysteria, any kind of outbreaks of panic uh, caused by this disease? Yes, definitely. It was a very scary and terrifying disease. It wasn't only that the impact was terrifying. Many parents would say, this will change the future of my child. They won't be able to go to school. They won't be able to become a worker or a professional or something. I have to protect them so that it was also the, the the image of a threatened future as well. In fact, I have to say in some ways it made some public health officials' life easier because the public was very um, was frightened, would more likely stay home, avoid crowds where there might be children who might similarly be affected. Later in the mid-20th century with the March of Dimes, the March of Dimes provided funding. Uh, it was a national organization that provided funding for treatment, but it also really promoted fear as well. It would tell parents to stay home, to avoid swimming pools, to avoid movie theaters, 
and parents listened, absolutely. It's hard not to draw parallels with our collective recent experience coming out of the COVID-19 pandemic, but were there any instances in which you'd have kind of empty cities or maybe cities devoid of kids for, for long stretches of time as these scares popped up? I was interested in that in my own research when I looked at the early 1900s as polio epidemics emerged in the U.S., especially in the Northeast, there were circuses with no children. There were movie theaters with no children. There were playgrounds that were chained and no children played there. There were moments that I thought definitely were reminiscent of things that we've seen um, in, in COVID, too, that, that it, it was an eerie uh, sight. Is it fair to draw, just for my non-doctor, non-scientific brain, is it, is it fair to draw a parallel with chickenpox in some sense, in that once you got it at a very early age, you were kind of immune for life? Is that why the focus was on children, not so much adults or infants, but that, that the group in the middle? So there are actually quite a lot of connections with chicken pox. And one of the ones I was just thinking about is that before there was a chicken pox vaccine, and this was true for measles as well, parents in the 40s and 50s used to have chicken pox and measles parties where they would bring children together in order to get this disease because they knew that it would be a much safer way than if the child got it when they were older. I'm not saying that's the safest way to get a disease, but this was really you know, consciously um, done. Now, you can do that. Perhaps the most fun way to get the disease, because you get to go to a party. No, no, well, there, isn't any, there isn't any fun way. But there's no way to do that with polio, because you cannot identify who has it and who does not, mm. um, other than the, the effects of it, right? So there were never polio parties, I, I have to say. But it is certainly true that polio took much longer to be seen as a scary epidemic in a number of third world countries, parts of Latin America, parts of Africa. They just didn't see it, parts of India, um, because children were exposed as infants in a ways that used to be true for the rest of the Western world. So epidemiology ends up actually being quite similar, but you have to sort of get your head around the notion of a disease that was everywhere, but was invisible. Naomi, you mentioned earlier FDR, Franklin Delano Roosevelt, who became president in 33 after winning the election in 32. And time and time again, as I was researching this, this space in polio, you come back to FDR as a really interesting figure because he brought so much more visibility to polio as a disease and its effects. He he couldn't walk very well at all. He had to have support because of the effects of the polio that he contracted. And while he did his best in a lot of ways to disguise that fact and to some extent in, in a lot of his publicity photos and so forth, it was very well known that FDR had polio and was paralyzed as a result. And I wanted to dig into that and get your thoughts on just how big an impact did he have, did FDR have in bringing prominence to an understanding of the disease and, and also uh, perhaps destigmatizing it along the way? Absolutely. I think he was a critical figure in the history of polio, but it's an, it's an interesting story, his significance. Um, the fact that he had polio and that his legs were paralyzed was widely 
known and understood. He was a a young lawyer and an aspiring politician when it happened. And many members of his family, including his mother, suggested that he take up the life of an invalid and live in a wheelchair and maybe become an art collector or something that wealthy, disabled people could do. And he said, no, he was going to conquer this and he was going to go back into politics. And to do that, he couldn't walk again. He uh, he tried very hard, but it, it was not possible to do that. Um, but what he did manage to do is to convince people that he had done that as much as possible so that in public he was seen to be standing, not so much walking, but standing. Uh, and sometimes he would take the arms of his two tall, strong sons and he would sort of use them as walking crutches, as it were, and he would walk a short distance or something like that because he didn't believe that a disabled man could be elected president. So he, the story that he told about polio was it is it was a terrible, horrendous time that for a time left him close to death and that he had been able to come back from it. And in coming back from it, he had learned about the suffering of others. And this was a very powerful argument, especially with the beginning of the Great Depression, and, and I think true as well. So he then became a kind of hero to many children and, and young people who got polio because their parents would say, you know, you can, you can get through it. You can become president just like Roosevelt. And did that humanize him in a lot of ways from his, as you mentioned earlier, his growing up on mansions, very different from most of the country at that time? It really did. It absolutely did. Um, and I think it did for real, in fact. It did as a, a, a sort of political figure, and it did, I think, in his own uh, mind, it did uh, introduce him to suffering and pain and the importance of what it means to be someone who struggles. And uh, that was a really uh, important part of the shaping of his political persona, I think. On the other hand, his efforts at what one polio historian, a disability polio historian, has called his splendid deception were to constantly, um, he was featured in newsreels everywhere, uh, lots of photographs and so on, and he used uh, techniques to draw the eye away from his legs so that he would have a cape, he would have a cigarette holder, he would have people look at his shoulders and his neck and, and his arms, and these were very powerful ways. So often when people thought about uh, Roosevelt, um, they, they imagined the sort of top half of him. Although many people sort of knew sort of that he was paralyzed. Some people thought that he had had um, regained his the use of his legs. And then there were his enemies who said not only was he paralyzed, but it hadn't been polio, that it was venereal disease. So polio was as stigma, you know, it's turned into as stigmatizing a disease as, as anybody could do. You're right. I have in my mind the image of him I think it was at the Yalta conference, maybe, where he, he was very good at reclining with his legs crossed, and he looked like he was just sitting there. And then the, the famous, famous photo of him in a car with the long cigarette, if you know what I'm talking about. And he, there was a real dynamism around him. And I, I wonder if, did that dynamism and, and the fact that he was president, to the point you made earlier, did that really do a lot to destigmatize polio? Was, was there a before and after FDR when it comes to public perception of polio, you think? 
That's a really interesting question and something that I I am uh, interested in. I think it destigmatized it to the, the extent that it was no longer seen as a disease of dirt and the city and the impoverished, and that was very important. Um, I think that it didn't do very much to destigmatize the disabling elements of polio. Because he was still hiding it. That's right. It was still hidden, and it didn't make a great deal of difference for many polio survivors who, no matter what their parents might have liked, not only could not become president, but found it very challenging to get a job until the Second World War. And in the Second World War, employers were desperate, desperate for workers. And so many, many disabled people got jobs in um, munitions uh, factories and actually domestic work as well because they uh, they needed the workers. It seems to me that this this early 1900s up into the the 30s and 40s and certainly the 50s were really kind of a fulcrum point in the history of polio, where you went from pre certainly to post vaccine, which we'll get to in just a little bit here. But I'm curious, what was it in the early 1900s and into the 30s? Why was it at that moment when you start to have an increased understanding of, from a scientific perspective, polio? It, I, I think it was the early 1900s, if I'm not mistaken, where it was identified as a virus. Why was that period when that all happened? Well, the early, yes, 1909 was when um, the etiology of polio was identified as a virus. Um, this was an, a very exciting time uh, scientifically where physicians and researchers all around the world were attempting to come up with the germ of every possible disease. And they actually often came up with germs even for diseases that don't have germs. But we'll leave that one aside. Um, and they identified a polio as a virus. But in 1909, and really until the 1930s, a virus just meant a very, very tiny bacterium that could be filtered. It was so small that it would go through a filter and still have potency. That's what a virus meant. By the 1920s, there were a small group of researchers, especially at the Rockefeller Institute for Medical Research, now Rockefeller University, who identified the study of virology as one of the new areas in medicine and had conferences where they exchanged information about the particular viral diseases that they were looking at, especially polio. And then with the founding of the March of Dimes in the 1930s, which involved Roosevelt and his legal partner, Basil O'Connor, who founded this very powerful and influential charity, they put aside a certain proportion of the money, actually only about 11%, but the March of Dimes was a very well-off charity, so that was quite a lot of money, for uh, scientific research. And they funded research into virology. And uh, you could get grants from the March of Dimes for a whole range of of viral studies, not even necessarily only polio. So, for example, the March of Dimes funded research on influenza, you know, a bunch of other, hoping that they would learn things about viruses that would also help for polio as well. And that was a very exciting uh, time scientifically through the 1930s and 40s. I read that in the 1930s, there was this really interesting moment where there was a very, very early vaccine trial of some sorts, and it was actually halted because some child participants in the studies 
actually ended up contracting polio, which we obviously don't want. And there was a massive public outcry from from that. The the, the public said, "Wait a second, let's let's stop these tests. We don't want our kids getting polio in an effort to stop the disease." And again, I couldn't help but draw parallels with with COVID nineteen in, in some respect. And I was humans don't change all that much, I suppose. But I was curious to hear a little bit more. How much did that outcry in the thirties push off some of this vaccine development for polio? That's exactly what it did do. So. By the early 1930s, the um, antecedent of the March of Dimes, before it was called the March of Dimes, called the Birthday Ball Committee, was funding research. And some of the uh, members of the committee that were handing out the grants really felt that, you know, they know it's a virus, so why don't they start doing tests of the virus, uh, just as they were doing tests for yellow fever, for, for example, and also for influenza, and try to come up with a vaccine. And two different researchers, one in New York and one in Philadelphia, came up with a polio vaccine. And then without permission from the grant agency, proceeded to test it. And there were many things wrong with this. Among other things, the virus is made of three variants, but that wasn't understood in the 30s. So that they were infecting kids with some kind of virus. We don't know, you know, which particular variant of the polio virus. And we just really didn't know enough about the virus itself. And not only did some children develop um, polio, 11 died, children died in the Philadelphia trial. Trial is the wrong word, test, let's say. And um, I haven't read as much about the public outcry, but I can tell you that there was massive scientific outcry. And one public health official who had been associated with the Philadelphia test stood up at a meeting and said he wished that he could disappear into the ground, that he was so embarrassed by this. But one of the impacts of those two tests is that the funding agency said no vaccines. No, we're not going to do that. That is absolutely unacceptable and much too dangerous. And so for at least a decade longer, there was no funding for vaccines. And so it may there may well have been some researchers who longed to try out a vaccine and may have in fact in secret done this, but at least by the major grant agency, you were not allowed to do that. And so just to hit the nail on the head, even back in the 30s, there was a, a major institutional outcry on these, I guess we'd call them unethical studies. Is that fair? Yes, I think that's fair. This is an obvious segue now into the development of the famous vaccine we're all familiar with, I think. I didn't realize that a Polish scientist actually developed the first effective one, but then of course the inactivated polio vaccine, the Jonas Salk, who we all learn about in grade school and so forth, that was really widely publicized around 1955. But connect those dots for us. The development of a vaccine is largely pushed off due to these unethical tests in the 30s. And how do we get into the early and mid-50s to have an efficacious vaccine? How does that change? One of the things that changes actually is polio science. And increasingly, there were a number of researchers who wanted to understand, is polio just a disease of paralysis? 
Are there cases, that there were cases that were called abortive polio, that was the technical term in the mid-20th century, uh, that is to say they didn't developed paralysis. And so there was a lot of discussion about, are these really polio? How, how do we link them? And finally, uh, in 1949, two major scientists, one at Yale and one at Hopkins, identified that the, the virus travels through the blood. And up to that time, that had not been understood or, or shown. And as a result of this, you could now imagine that the virus might enter the body somewhere that wasn't the brain or the spine, and then travel by the bloodstream to the brain and spine. So suddenly this suggested potentially the idea that you might be able to develop a vaccine where you could ensure that the antibodies, however you were developing them, might be able to be in the bloodstream uh, in some kind of safe way. And this, this was a major, critically important discovery. And so you start to get people more comfortable with the idea that if it's bloodborne, maybe there's some way to develop a bloodborne vaccine. Hilary Kaposky, who's the Polish scientist who developed a live virus vaccine in 1950 was funded by, he was able to do this because he was funded by a chemical company, right? He wasn't funded by the March of Dimes. Um, so he didn't have any of these requirements that he not develop one. And he was actually part of a small group of people who were very excited about the idea of developing a live virus vaccine, including uh, Albert Sabin, who wasn't a March of Dimes funded researcher, but people were terrified that if you put live polio virus particles into children's body, they would get polio. And when you say a company funded this, this initial research, was this in seeking a profit motive? Was this thinking, oh gosh, there's a lot of money in, in figuring this out? Yes, there was a lot of money. There was a lot of money in figuring out a polio vaccine. And so private industry was filling in some of the grant vacuum? Absolutely. Very excited about this. Yes. Their dream was that they would find an in-house researcher instead of a March of Dimes person who was at some university. It was because of the incredible fear of the paralysis that Jonas Salk, who was um, experimenting with a killed virus vaccine, and the idea is that it's so mild a virus that it can't produce paralysis. I mean, the question is, can it produce immunity, but certainly cannot produce paralysis. And that was far more palatable to the March of Dimes administrators who were still scarred by the earlier experience. They just did not want dead children or paralyzed children. And, and was Salk actually funded by the March of Dimes? Absolutely. Ah, okay. So you have these two critical insights. You've got the the realization that it was a, a bloodborne pathogen, really interesting. And then it sounded like also there was the realization in the early 1900s that people could get polio and not become paralyzed. And that seems to be a, a big insight that was gathered back then. Is that fair? Yeah. By, by the 1950s, people understood that. I don't, I don't think I want to say that the public completely understood that. I think when they used polio, they still meant person with paralysis. And in fact, people with paralysis, polio survivors, called themselves in the 1940s and 50s 
polios, like that was a term that they that they use. It meant polio survivor. When the public in the mid 1950s is told that we have an inactive virus vaccine for polio, what was the response? Was was it parties in the street? How how did people react? There were parties in the street. There were church bells. There was confetti. There were um, headlines in every major newspaper around the world. There was just incredible excitement. It, it was a feeling that something incredible, a, a miracle had been achieved by American medical science. And what did the rollout look like? How, how did the government start to actually get the vaccine into, I assume, kids to start with? Yes. The trial that they had done that had led to the announcement had been done on second and third graders in American public schools. Um, and so they felt that it was only fair because it involved massive placebo shots too, right? That it was only fair that you firstly give the vaccine that was now shown to work to the placebo children. And then they used the school as a way of expanding and uh, into other grades and, and, and so on. Um, I, I will say that we do jump to think that the government was doing this. The March of Dimes actually worked very sort of partnered with local agencies, public health agencies, school boards, uh, nursing groups, uh, to be part of the clinical trials. And then once the vaccine was shown to be safe and effective, um, the March of Dimes was willing to sort of hand over much of the rollout to public health departments. So then public health departments sort of took charge of that. And did it ultimately become a federally funded initiative? So the federal government was funding, let's say, highways about this time or some. There, there were uh, calls in Congress to get more federal funding to help with the polio rollout. That was a tricky moment because just before this, the AMA had helped to defeat national health insurance and was very, very skeptical of a federal role in medicine anywhere. And so the AMA actually came out and said that polio, after the very first part where you vaccinate the kids who'd had placebos, that seemed like a fair thing to do, that after that, um, what public health departments should do is very little because the polio vaccine should be given by private physicians. So really through this period, you continue to get that sort of conflict between public health departments who wanted to get lots and lots of children vaccinated and private physicians who felt that if public health department did it, they were losing patients they, that they could, you know, charge. And um, so uh, that was an issue all the way through the 50s. And so did you see a lot of people just doing cash pay for these vaccines? When the public health department gave them, they were free. Were there people against the vaccine? Was there kind of a you know mid-20th century anti-vaxxer movement at all? It's so great that you asked that question. That is actually one of the, the research topics that I pursued during COVID. That, that is an apropos topic during COVID. <laughs> yes. The church bells ringing and people being so excited. And those are all true things and did happen. But I, I wanted to dig a little deeper into, was there an anti-vax movement in the 1950s? What did people really think about this new rollout? Um, and lo and behold, you won't be surprised. Yes, there was an anti-vax um, movement. There were warnings from individuals who argued that 
this was just a money-making ploy by the March of Dimes, that this also that the March of Dimes and their scientists like Salk were wrong and that polio was not a virus disease and then instead it was actually caused by irresponsible parents who fed their kids ice cream and other kinds of sugary food that led to a, a decline in nutrition that then led them vulnerable to develop paralysis. And one guy famously offered himself um, as a guinea pig to be tested by being given a shot of, I guess, the polio virus to see if he developed it or not. It's hard to say exactly how that would have worked. And there were many pamphlets sent to all of the major figures, the head of the March of Dimes, Jonas Salk, Albert Sabin, um, everybody got literature from these anti-vaxxers. Now, looking at how people responded, individual families, I also found another a number of families who decided not to participate in the clinical trial. You never hear about that very much, but the Macho Dimes was very interested in what they called resistors, people who just said, no, thank you, I don't want my child participating. And I thought that was a really very interesting moment. And, and when they asked, especially the mothers, why are you not letting your child participate? Most of the mothers said, it's just an experiment. I want to wait and see. People are remarkably consistent through the ages. There you go. In your book, Dirt and Disease, you touch on the fact that polio affected wealthy children as well as poor children, but there was a, a big and noticeable effect to wealthy and middle-class children. And I, I think that's a very interesting concept because it's different from a lot of diseases. We touched on this earlier in that it, most diseases seem to be ones of kind of squalor, and this was kind of the inverse. As, as you're getting cleaner, you're getting exposed to this potentially dangerous disease. But how do you think about the fact that that wealthy children having been affected seems to have really contributed to the push for vaccines and mass inoculations? Do you, do you think there's something kind of suspect about that from a morality perspective? I, I was really curious to hear your thoughts on on that that idea. Ah, uh, it's an it's an interesting question. I, I think that firstly, polio plays those interesting tricks with our assumptions about the relationship between class and disease, right? And Roosevelt was a perfect example of an incredibly wealthy elite man who had polio and then adopted polio as sort of his disease. He was sort of the, the patron of, of polio. And I think that was a very uh, powerful and important and certainly encouraged a number of wealthy friends of his to donate to the March of Dimes. And it became a very respectable charity, a very important uh, charity. And it had the president as its sort of head. And then after he died, Truman and then Eisenhower all agreed to be the sort of president of the March of Dimes in that same kind of uh, way, of course, with a slightly different uh, implication. So uh, it was a very respectable charity. I would say that there were many wealthy families who were very terrified of the idea of a vaccine because they were not quite sure that that level of knowledge and technology would really protect their children. The issue around poor children is that they were more likely to be the guinea pigs for public health experiments of various kinds. And so one of the great 
decisions by the March of Dimes was to pick the public school, which in the 1950s, these were segregated schools, of course, um, but the March of Dimes made sure that the clinical trial also used volunteers from black schools as well as white schools. But the school, at least in the 50s, was considered the, the sort of epitome of, of everyone's child. Right. Wealthy children went to public schools. Poor children went to public schools. There were very few grammar schools, academies, anything like that. The reaction against Brown versus Board of Education hadn't taken place yet. So that they picked an institution that would kind of uh, minimize the question of class. Um, and I think that that was a very smart move. So the public school, in many ways, cut across class lines much more than it does these days in a lot of regards? Yes. Hmm. Interesting. Absolutely. You know, by the late 1900s, polio was was largely eradicated, uh, at least in the United States. But I'm hearing about it a lot more in the news recently. I, I read, uh, I think it's in Rockland County, New York, in July of 2022, there was actually a case of paralytic polio, and the, the person was a, an unvaccinated young adult. But I'm curious, I'm sure you've read about this phenomenon, this this polio resurgence, so to speak. Why is that happening again now? So one of the interesting things about polio is that the polio virus rarely goes away. If you have a country that is um, you know, 90% vaccinated, you're likely to never see a case of what's called the wild polio virus. Very, very occasionally, you would see a case of paralysis from the live virus vaccine, which we as a country stopped using. So we stopped using the Sabin oral vaccine in 1992. Is it still given these days internationally, a live virus vaccine? Yes, yes. But the polio virus easily returns. It may well have been in wastewater in a variety of places, but as long as you have a high rate of vaccination, um, and people don't test wastewater for polio until they think there might be polio. <laughs> and so it's interesting that the surveillance, as soon as that uh, Rockford County case came, what New York State is doing now is monitoring its wastewater. Um, and lo and behold, in the wastewater, it is finding quite a significant uh, amount of the polio virus. And um, also, they're testing more carefully people with uh, potential polio symptoms. And they have actually found, I think, 63 cases in New York State. Are those mostly people who are not vaccinated? Yes. Yes, I think almost all of them are not vaccinated. And then they test those people to find out whether they were linked to the same variant of the guy at, in Rockland County. And almost all of them, there were three cases that appear to have some other kind of variant. So that you don't need surveillance when you feel that you have conquered a disease, mm -hmm. mostly. But I would say that COVID, among other reasons, but COVID has certainly led to a decline in automatic vaccinations of a whole bunch of diseases, right? It's hard enough to get kids vaccinated. The only way that we really enforce vaccination is that we ask the schools to be our gatekeepers so that there's no particular 
penalty if you don't get your infant vaccinated or you don't get your toddler vaccinated. But when you try to have that child attend a public facility like a school, the school requires that you show that the child is vaccinated. Uh, We've heard lots of stories of fights about those requirements in various communities in California and elsewhere. And indeed, there were a number of what are called vaccine resistors or or vaccine hesitancy um, that have led to outbreaks of measles and other preventable uh, diseases that has actually made the state of California tighten its vaccine law. It used to have a lot of um, options for people to opt out, and now it does not. But that was before COVID. And so COVID has now really sort of disrupted that access. A lot of people did not take their children to the doctor or to a public health facility for fear of COVID. Um, and I think that we had a tricky public health infrastructure before COVID. And this is just a sign of what can happen under those kind of circumstances. So whether willing or unwilling, is it fair to say there's a a linkage between the polio rearing its head again and this decline in vaccinations stemming from the COVID-19 era? I would say so. Yes. Yes. Touching on COVID-19 briefly, and this is a rather big question, I I, I will admit that, but I'm curious, do you think the U.S.'s response to COVID was influenced in any ways by the polio epidemic in the early and mid 1900s, do you, do you think we did anything better or worse from our learnings from that time? I will say that I've often been asked that question. Through COVID, especially the peak, peak periods of, of COVID, uh, you know, what were the, the diseases that Americans faced that may have influenced the way we think about COVID today? And I have to say that at least as far as polio is concerned, that the polio vaccine generally got pretty good press. You know, it was seen as a very effective way of dealing with a very scary disease. So if there was indeed some kind of legacy, then one one element of that legacy would be the ability to remember polio, which was conquered as it were, by a vaccine which was safe and effective. And that's certainly, I would say, in the American public's memory. At the same time, there's also the fear of polio, I think. The fear of diseases like polio has lingered and certainly also played a role in the immediate and visceral response of something so scary, so potentially deadly um, as COVID. Naomi, my my final question I always like to ask my guests just to tease out some commonalities between the topics we, we talk about, but what lesson or lessons have you learned from your study of polio that you think can be applied to today's world? When I think about what difference living through COVID has made for me as a historian of polio, historian of disease, I've actually been struck by how I had not often spent much time thinking about the experience of people living through a pandemic or an epidemic, what it was like in the middle, as it were, where you didn't know the outcome, 
You didn't know what was going to happen. You saw many, many different possible solutions proposed. You lived through the fear and some of the craziness. You watched departments of public health struggle, sometimes ineffectively, to manage the the public mind, to institute restrictions or take them off. And it's made me aware of how important it is to not fall into that assumption that I know I and other historians have done, which is because we know the outcome, we have sort of applied that, oh, well, we know what's going to happen, to our study of what it was like during. So that's actually, to me, that, that's been a very uh, humbling lesson, of taking much more seriously what it's like to live through something frightening and important. I would say that one of the things it has also reminded me is that historians of polio had taken almost no notice of the rollout of the polio vaccines. They talked about how the vaccines were developed, and then they sort of jumped to, and then Jonas Salk died or something like that. And so we actually really don't know very much about how the Salk vaccine and then later the oral vaccine were rolled out, what public responses were, what public health departments did. It's outrageous that we haven't really asked those questions. So I, I also draw the lesson that there actually are a number of elements in the history of polio that we still need to know a lot about, which will teach us more about understanding COVID. It is easy to forget hindsight is always twenty twenty, And when you're living in the middle of something, the, the future sure is fuzzy. Yes. Well, Naomi Rogers, thank you so much. I've really, really enjoyed the conversation. This is fascinating. And again, you can find more about Naomi and her work at medicine.yale.edu slash profile slash Naomi underscore Rogers. Thank you so much. I appreciate the time. Thank you very much for having me. This has been a production of Riches and Power, hosted by Alex Dubay, edited by Sean Dooley. Copyright 2022 by Wesley Capital, LLC.